0: Thank you very much. Um, we're going to be in Romans, and um, I don't have much time to waste because even though Matt said I talk fast, I've got a lot to do in not not that long. So um, we're going to be in Romans, and my only caveat for the next just under an hour is you may... Um, you probably find yourself disagreeing with some of my exegetical decisions, but I hope you can roll with it anyway, and, and sort of, and hopefully see the letter in a different way. Even if on some occasions you think that's not what Romans seven twenty one means, or it's okay, um, we can agree to disagree. But um, I hope it will be helpful to help you see it in a, in a new way, anyway. So, uh, so I'm Paul, and I serve. I'm a slave of Jesus, and I was called and set apart to be a messenger of His set apart for the gospel of God. And the gospel of God is essentially that it was promised in the scriptures and it, it was it's a message, a good news announcement about the son of God. That's really what the gospel is. And it's about his son who in a fleshly sense, was descended from King David and therefore has got the the humanity and kingship that comes with that. But he was also vindicated as the son of God in power because he was raised from the dead on the third day. And that double whammy means that he brings together the two lines of expectation and hope that we have. And on the basis of that gospel, I've been set aside and actually been given both the gift of grace and the, the messenger commission to go to all the nations and tell them about him so that they might obey him and come and worship him. That's, that's the story of my life. That's what I'm doing. And anyway, on that basis, I, that's who I am. And I want to send grace and peace to all of you who are at Rome and are set apart to be holy people with him. And first things first, I want to thank God for you because everywhere I go, I hear people telling me about the faith of the people at Rome. I think these guys are, Romans had received the gospel. Have you heard? Did you hear it? The gospels reach Rome. And on that basis, I've had this long desire, this long-held passion to come and visit you guys and to be strengthened by you and for you to be strengthened by me. I want an exchange of charismata. I want to give you a gift. I want you to give me a gift just by being together. I think that would be wonderful. But until now, I've been prevented from doing that. And I assure you, I will come back to that subject and why and what I'm then going to ask you to do in about 45 minutes' time. But for now, just trust me, I'd love to see you. And the reason why is because I have this debt and it it binds me. I, I live daily, weekly, monthly with this obligation, this debt that I feel God has given me a, uh, effectively a, to discharge, which is that I feel God has given me a gift that is to be shared with every nation on earth. And if I don't do that, I'm actually in debt to God and, and I'm in debt to them because he's given me a message that I haven't yet delivered and therefore I'm acting as if it's mine. I don't want to do that. I, I'm actually under obligation to every single person most of you are Greeks. Some of you are Jews. I'm under obligation to you. But I'm also under obligation to barbarians. Like to the people who go, bah, blah, 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 that you don't understand what they're saying in the farthest reaches of the empire, the kind of people who you think are now living in darkness and drinking the blood of their dead. I'm under obligation to them as well. And, and then I'm under, under, under obligation to people who think you're wise and people who you think are foolish. And on that basis, I'm desperate to come to Rome, but I'm going to talk about how my visit to you might connect with my mission to the barbarians. In 45 minutes, we'll get there. But for now, I want to tell you about that gospel that I am so desperate to preach and why the very meaning of what the gospel is should compel you to join me in partnership to try and reach those barbarians that we all know and love. And that's why I want to come to Rome. And I am not ashamed of it at all because that message is the power of God for the salvation of all types of people. It's actually in the gospel an impartial righteousness, an impartial saving The personality of God, the rightness of God is expressed in the message that we preach to save all kinds of people and it did come to the Jews first but now it's also come to the Greeks. It's come to people like you and that's the way the gospel works. Actually, it's not a partial message. It's a message that's for all nations and actually that goes right the way back to the prophet Habakkuk who I know you know who said actually the righteous are going to live by faith and it's therefore not on the basis of some of the other criteria for appraising status that you and I might use. The reason it's needed, of course, is that the anger of God is currently being poured out all over the place. And you don't need me to tell you about it. You live there, right? You're surrounded in a city that is continually polluted and degraded by the destruction of the image of God that came about because human beings, instead of worshipping the creator, started worshipping things that the creator had made. And then what they found is that that exchange, where they said, well, we're going to swap the worship of the true God for the worship of things we've made, and they found if you if instead of worshipping one person who's unlike you, you worship people and things that are like you, you'll find that same trade happens in your relationships and in your sexuality. And you'll do the same thing there. So instead of marrying one person who's not like you, you will have sex with any number of things that are like you. And that's what happened. And men did it with men, and women did it with women. And the whole human race has become gradually unravelling with their sexuality, and it's all come from idolatry. It's actually fundamentally not a sex problem primarily. It's a worship problem. That, that, and as a result, you and the city you see around you, some of you are just weirded out by it, and some of you find it disgusting, and some of you don't and practice it, but you will find that that... Outworking simply a sort of logical consequence of a worship decision that the human race has made to worship creatures rather than creator. Yeah. And as a result, God has handed us over, and he's handed us over. Sex is just the start of it. To be honest, you see where it's unravelling too, and you'll find that it's, it's turned out into all kinds of debased thinking, which in some ways is the high point of the... Don't, don't fixate on the... You know, the worship is the beginning, and it tends then into a sort of sexuality, but you'll find it now expresses itself in the, the moral value judgments of an entire society have been completely turned on their heads and people are full of uh, wickedness and they, they kill each other and they hate each other and they are envious of each other and they gossip and they slander and they hate God and they hate one another and they hate their parents and the whole of society is unspooling and actually what's the way you can tell how bad it's got is that when people see other people doing things that are wicked, they think, yeah, that's great and then they hear people saying, no, 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 that's not that righteousness looks like this they say, Ugh, that's awful it's like the whole civilization has turned on its head and their ethical values are topsy-turvy and they approve of people who practice such things. But you can't pass judgment on them. And particularly if, if I might say Jewish people among us, we are at risk of passing judgment on that as if that's another person's problem and you don't, might nece- not necessarily see that it's actually your problem too. <laughs> right? You pass judgment. You don't have an excuse because actually you, who rightly condemn that behavior, are doing the exact same things And it should frighten you that you do. Some of you you think that you're going to escape the judgment of God on the basis of your status or the basis of your ethnicity, and you're not. You're actually going to be held accountable in exactly the same way as they are. So you can look around you at the city and go, oh, what's going on here? And instead, you'll find... You are still thinking as if your privileged status, particularly amongst the Jews, might disqualify you from needing to face the same judgment that they will, but it's not true because the judgment of God is going to come to all of us. And actually, he is one day going to give out an apportionment of reward or punishment on the basis of what people have done, in line with what people have done. And it's terrifying to think that some of us are going to stand before him and are going to experience him saying, well... This is the kind of life you have lived. And as a result, you will be sentenced to this. And this is on the basis of what you have done, you're going to be given this wonderful reward. And isn't that a little bit of a scary thought? And that's going to be true for all of us, whether we are Jewish or Greek. Jews will get it first, but then the Greeks will as well. And there will be distress for the people who've done evil. And there will be glory and honour and immortality for the people who've done good. God doesn't show favouritism. So please don't think that somehow on the basis of the ethnic group you come from, you're going to get away with the things that you've done. That's not the way that God has promised to judge the world. If you sinned within the, within the law, within the Jewish Torah, you will find yourself judged on that basis. And if you sinned outside of the Torah, you'll find yourself judged on that basis, and you're not going to. Go, and neither of you will get away with it. Neither will I. Actually, you'll find even now there are, there are Gentile believers living as if the Torah is already written on their hearts. And those Gentile believers would be in a position to condemn a Jewish believer who has the Torah in the letter and doesn't do it. Well, it's far better to be a Gentile who has the Torah written in their hearts and does do it. So please, if you're a Jew, don't think you're going to be okay here just on the basis of the fact that you are elect by God. It's not the case. We are all in the same boat. So if you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the Torah and you boast in God and you approve what's excellent, you think, oh yeah, I've got it. I know, I know it all. Do you find, are you... That kind of person who having on the basis of your instruction of the foolish, do you do you live by that? Or do you find you actually contradict it all the time in your daily life? You teach others, do you teach yourself? Do you preach against stealing, do you steal? Do you preach against idolatry? Do you rob temples? Are you that kind of person? The name of God, the prophet said, is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So I don't think any of you are in a position to judge because the reality is that circumcision, the cut in the flesh, is of great value if you keep the law but if you don't then you have become like an uncircumcised person that you despise and actually what you'll find is that the uncircumcised person who does keep the Torah because God by his spirit has written it in their hearts and we will come to that they may well be in a position where they are a Jew and you have been physically circumcised are not a Jew now that ought to be a frightening prospect for any of us but it's also the condemnation that might flow that way from an uncircumcised in the flesh person who's actually circumcised in the spirit's that's ultimately in line with what God had always said would happen, because ultimately the Jew, the Yehuda is somebody whose praise whose Yehuda comes not from men but from God and we should see that connection that that indicates that God was always going to be a person who set his pra- it was invoked praise and set his favor on people who, who stood and received their praise and a credit from God, and not from human beings. If your circumcisions become a ground to boast in your flesh, then you are just as bad as the people from whom your father Abraham was supposed to be separated. Which might make it sound, of course, that there's no point in being Jewish. It might sound like I've just thrown Israel's history under the bus. What is the value then of being a Jew, a Yehuda? What's the value of circumcision? Well, actually, loads. There's loads of value in circumcision. The Jews were the ones we were entrusted with the oracles of God. And if some people were unfaithful to that, that doesn't mean that God isn't faithful. That means that people are unfaithful. And of course, we knew that already. In fact, God is true, even if every single human being lines up and disagrees with him. I would choose that God was true and everybody else was a liar than to flip things around and say these people's testimony revokes the righteousness of God. It's just not the case. If our unrighteousness confirms the righteous, righteousness of God, does that mean that God somehow would be wrong to judge us for it? Of course not. I mean, by the way, I'm saying this just as a hypothetical. I'd hope no one would ever think I meant that, but sometimes people do you hear my message and think that's what I mean? That's not what I mean at all. I'm simply saying that the righteousness of God is fixed and secure, even if the rest of the human race has rejected it and lived as if it isn't true. And that doesn't mean that God's promises won't be kept at all. What it does mean is that the Jews, though we have these immense privileges, are not entitled to stand on them as if it means that we are not going to face judgment for what we've done. In fact, you go through the Psalms and the prophets. I mean, I... I just give you a, few, a flavor of this. Not one is righteous. Not even one. No one understands. Pro- you know these Psalms. They're about Israel in the main, aren't they? There's nobody there. No one in my generation is righteous. Their throat's an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. They're like vipers when they speak. And in their way, the way of peace, they haven't known. They don't fear God. Brothers, this is a set of teachings about Israel. So again, you mustn't think that what I'm saying here about the fact that Jews and Greeks alike are under the judgment of God. It's somehow an innovation. I'm just telling you what the psalmists and the prophets have always told us. And we know that all of those things that are spoken in the Torah, the Lord says to those who are under the Torah so that every mouth might be silenced and no one would stand in front of God on the day of judgment and say, well, I'm fine. We know that no flesh is ever going to be declared righteous by God in his sights because actually through the Torah, we become aware of how sinful we are. So if we are going to be made righteous with God, it's not going to be through the flesh. But now, the impartial saving rescue of God has come to us apart from the Torah. I know that sounds shocking, but The Torah bears witness to it. And of course, the prophets do as well. But the impartial saving righteousness for Jew and for Greek, the righteousness of God that is through faith in Jesus Christ. Doesn't that name warm your heart having heard about condemnation for so long? The righteousness of God that comes through believing in Jesus Christ for anybody who believes. Because there is ultimately no distinction. And I know you find that hard to hear, particularly my Jewish brothers, but it's true. There is no distinction because every single person, as the Psalms and the law and the prophets testify, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory. The Gentiles have and so have you. And all of us are under, in that sense, at risk of his judgment because we've all fallen short of the glory. And by the same universal token, all, all are justified by his grace as a gift, whether they are Jew or Gentile, through the, I've got to pile up my pictures here. We're justified. That's a law court picture. By his grace, which is the idea of, that's like a gift given to you through the redemption. That's a slave market picture or an exodus picture that has come through Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, which is a sacrifice temple picture where Jesus stands in front of God and receives that which you deserved in order to liberate you. And that's happened as a gift by blood, which is another temple picture to be received by faith. And so you get all of those gifts at once with the same step as you ask and you trust Jesus to rescue you even, and rather than trusting in your own works or your circumcision or your righteousness, you find that this redemption, propitiation, grace, gift, blood, all of that comes to you at once. And the reason it does is because Jesus, in doing it, wanted to demonstrate the righteousness of God. He wanted to demonstrate that God is both righteous and the one who His people. And I, How else could you do that? How else could you vindicate God and vindicate sinners at the same time? The only way you could do it would be if God himself stepped in to take on the righteousness of God in human form and then share it with all people so that God would be vindicated at the same time as you. So if that were true and it only comes by faith, then how could anybody boast about anything? You can't, that's got to be ruled out of court straight away, hasn't it? You, on, on, and on what kind of Torah has it has boasted boasting been destroyed? Is it the Torah of works? No, it's actually the Torah of faith, which we will talk about a bit more later. Because we hold that a person is declared righteous in God by faith apart from the works of the Torah. It's not unique to the Jews or of course, to the Gentiles. Otherwise, it would imply that God was only the God of the Jews. And he's not. He's the God of Gentiles as well because God is one and he is going to justify circumcised people by their faith in Jesus and uncircumcised people by their faith in Jesus. And by the way, when you believe that, it doesn't mean that you chuck the Torah under the bus. Instead, it means you uphold the Torah because you see its purpose, its destination was always going to be Christ. And again, we will come back to that in a little while. The best example of all of this is obviously Abraham who is our fleshly forefather. Again, I'm speaking here as a Jew to many Jews listening. And if Abraham had been justified by the works of the the Torah, then he admittedly would have something to boast about. But, But, Admittedly, you can't boast before God, but he would have had something to boast about. He said, I was justified because I was circumcised. But that's not what scripture says. Scripture says Abraham believed and it was credited to him like an alien gift. You see, if you work, you don't ever talk about gift. You don't talk about things being blessings or unusual alien righteousness. You say, "No, these are my wages." Right? I go to work and go to work. I make my tents. I go off to the, I go off to the shop and build it all around. Come back. I sell it and people give me a wage. Well, that's my due. I'm entitled to it. If Scripture spoke that way about Abraham, it would be very hard to believe that there was a gift involved at all. But Scripture doesn't use that kind of language. Scripture says Abraham believed, and it was credited to him, it was reckoned to him as a righteousness, as if that isn't actually what he'd earned, but God reckoned it to him anyway. The same thing happens with David, of course. So why would you talk about David as blessed? That he's forgiven. Have you read the psalm? Blessed is he? You know, David's penitent psalm as he's just describing how awful he has been and how sorry he is and then God speaks and says blessed is the one whose lawless deeds are forgiven that language of blessing is not the language you use if you're entitled to be forgiven But that's the language you use if you know that you're not entitled to be forgiven and you have been anyway. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord doesn't count his sin. Brothers, if that's true of Abraham and of David, it's going to be true of you. It's going to be true of every last Jew out there, as well, of course, as the Gentiles. So I suppose I better ask the hypothetical, is that only for Jews then? Or is it also for the Gentiles? I mean, we say that faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How? When? When? Before or after circumcision? Because that makes all the difference. I assume you could see that, that if he was reckoned as righteousness after circumcision, then obviously we'd have to go back and say, well, this sounds like this is for the Jews then. But my whole point about the impartial saving righteousness of God is that it's not. And I can see that in the Torah, because as you know, Abraham called Genesis 12, justified on the basis of faith alone, Genesis 15. Circumcision doesn't happen until Genesis 17. Now, we obviously find out later that as he sacrificed, uh, prepares to sacrifice Isaac in Genesis 22, there is a vindication of God's justification of him because his life, his faith is outworked in exactly the way that God's promise would suggest it should be. But the point is, he was justified before he was circumcised. And on that basis, we can be confident, can't we, that Abraham is the father not just of the Jews, He's the father. He's the Abraham. That's why he's not called Avram anymore. He's called Avraham. He's called the father of many nations. So and we know that that must be true on the basis that his circumcision came after his justification. And therefore, he's the father of everybody who believes, not just everybody who's circumcised. And on that basis, Jews and Gentiles share the same promise. And that promise that he would be the heir of all things didn't come through the Torah. It came through the righteousness of faith if it's the people who keep the torah who are to be the heirs then faith is of no use at all because ultimately he doesn't cut doesn't cut it because ultimately you need the torah as well but it's not the law the torah brings wrath and where there's no torah there's no transgression and that's why it depends on faith so that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring some of whom are circumcised and some of whom are not Again, you've read Genesis, you know this, but Abraham to be the father of many nations was always going to be the the grandfather of all peoples and not just the Jews. And therefore it is the height of irony when people begin to think of Abraham's ethnic badge of circumcision as effectively being the basis in which he had right standing with God. One, it shows they've read Genesis in simply the wrong order. And two, it shows that they don't really think he's the father of many nations at all, but basically just of one. And he's the kind of man, as I said before, whose faith was then vindicated in its outworking because he, even though his his wife Sarah was laughing about it, but he knew he didn't waver in regard to the promises of God, he said, well, okay, I might even receive uh, this child back from the dead when he offered him up. And of course, in in a manner of speaking, he kind of did. And he was convinced that God was able to do what he promised. And that's why his faith was counted to him as righteousness and it will be it wasn't just written for him it wasn't just for him it was for all of us who trust in Jesus who has been raised from the dead delivered over for our transgressions and then lifted up that we also with him might be lifted up and found righteous as well and therefore since we have been declared righteous on the basis of faith and not on the basis of the works we have i love the word shalom don't you i love i love it i love the peace that comes when you just Breathe out, like I'm righteous with God's peace. I've got access through grace into this place, of this, this extraordinary grace in which I stand. And I rejoice, I have joy deep down in the glory of God. And not only that actually, but I find that even when sufferings come, I can find joy in them. And I'm not, that's not because I'm a masochist. It's because when I suffer, I know what suffering produces. I know where it's going. I know the end. I know that suffering produces endurance. And I don't like it, but it happens. And endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope never, ever lets you down because the love of God has been poured into our heart by the gift of the Spirit. And on the basis of the Spirit's been given to us, we know that all of the hope we have will one day be vindicated. It will be demonstrated as valid and true simply on the basis that the Spirit's been given to us. And he functions as a down payment of all that, but we don't have time to get into that now. The point is that while we were a a ruin, a mess, a wreck, Christ died for us, not when we were good, but when we were bad. You You do, sometimes people die for good people. People die for their country. People die for their family. They die because they feel like they have got something from this other person. Christ didn't do that. The Messiah died for us while we were still sinners, while we still hated him. That's when it happened. And on the basis of that, having been justified by his death, how much more are we gonna be saved by his life? Right? If a dead king saves you, what do you think a living king's gonna do? And therefore we can rejoice in God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received shalom. We have received peace with God. So just as sin came into the world through just one person and then death came in through sin, And spread to everybody because everybody sinned. Actually, parenthesis, sin was in the world before the Torah. Did you get that? Do you realize that? The thing is, if the way to prove this is that everybody between Adam and Moses died, even though, so far as we know from the scriptures, none of them committed a transgression because there wasn't any law. Adam's given a law, Moses is given a law, but the people in between, they weren't given laws, yet they died anyway. So we know that they didn't die on the basis of breaking specific laws. They died because they were in Adam somehow. They were part of the human race and what was true of him became true of them. Well, the free gift works kind of like that, but much, much better. The free gift is not, in many ways, is not like the trespass. I'm saying it kind of is, but in many ways it isn't because with the trespass, many people died, which was sort of the right outcome. Whereas with the gift of Jesus, many people have come to life, which is almost the wrong outcome. Do you see? So with Adam, you'd think, yeah, that was the appropriate response. You're in Adam, you die. In Christ, that doesn't feel like that, that fits with what you are. You get life, which is almost the wrong outcome. The free gift is... So much better than the trespass. And if the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, which it should have, the free gift following many trespasses, right? We, the free gift is response to a huge amount of sin. Adam got his judgment just from one. We've sinned millions of times and God has still brought a response that is far more gracious than it deserves to be. And if because of one man's trespass, death reigned, how much more through Jesus' one act of righteousness and obedience and faithfulness shall all of us find not that life reigns in us even, but that we reign in life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So one trespass leads to condemnation for all people. Jew or Gentile? One act of righteousness leads to righteousness for all people who believe in him, Jew and Gentile. And the law came in, of course, the law thought that it had got this all figured out and came in going, I will find a way of making them sin. And Adam went, oh, and the law went, yes. And then Jesus went, oh, but grace. And then the law went, right, okay, I'll get you this time, the Mosaic law. And then God went, yes. And trumped him again with grace. And then the sin came in and went, Oh, we're gonna do it again. We're gonna raise the stakes. We're gonna make more and more laws and it'll cause more and more sin. And every time the law thought it was winning and every time sin had managed to twist it, the grace of God trumped it again. And every time sin went up, then grace kept going and kept going and kept going so that no matter how much law there is and how many times you sin, grace just keeps on going up and up and up to the glory of God. Now, which raises the obvious question? Well, let's keep sinning then. That sounds great. A plan with no drawbacks. We'll keep sinning and grace will keep going up. Glory. (laughs) Guys, I really hope that everyone knows I'm joking about that. That would Imagine if anybody was to think that that was actually true. Because if you... I just need to talk... To show you this, I need to show you what happens when you get baptised. You've got you to understand that when you get baptised, you die. You go down into the grave and you lie flat on your back and you are dead with absolutely no capacity to raise yourself. And when you are, you are uniting yourself with the one who died. And in being buried with in baptism into death, you are experiencing the same separation from sin and the same uh, complete destruction of the old life that Jesus did when he died on the cross for you. And therefore, when he gets up again, and so do you, and you come out the tank and you stand up and everybody celebrates, you've just simply left the corpse, you, the one that wants to sin that grace may abound. You've left it in the tank. You can't carry on sinning as if that would just make on things going better. Of course it doesn't. If you've been united with him in a death like that, you're going to be united with him in a life like this. And if you don't see the connection, you've just not understood what baptism is, let alone what Jesus is. If we've died with Christ, we get to live with him. We know that Jesus, having been raised from the dead, is never going to die again. Death doesn't have any power. The death he died, he died once and for all. And the same is true for you. So you also have got to think dead to sin, alive to God that's what happens every time you baptize a person and on that basis you mustn't let sin get any say you see what we do otherwise is we say well sin if i act as if sin is my master i give my master my 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 members my parts of my body i go in and i say hey you're my master please take me wherever you want me to go and i follow him and i walk around doing exactly what he would have me do that's what slaves do and it's you are a slave so am i you are a slave to the person you obey You become a slave to sin and they're going to say, oh, go over here and do this. And you offer your members to them willingly as a servant and say, hey, make me sin. Go and teach me all the worst sinful things I can do in the town. If you do that, you are a slave to sin. But brothers, that's not who we are because we have been made obedient from the heart to a standard of teaching we've been committed to and we instead have become slaves of righteousness and therefore we come with our members and we present them to Christ and he says hey this is how to lead the righteous life hey this is what you should do with your hands your eyes your nose your feet this is what you should do with your body this is what you should do with every aspect of yourself and as you do that you become a slave of him there is no way of living this life without being a slave you can't you're either going to be a slave of this or a slave of that and as you Offer your body parts every day as you consider my eyes will do this, my hands will do that, my sexual organs will do this. I am continually submitting myself to one master or another. Brothers, choose well. Choose the one who has resurrected you from the dead and who died on your behalf because the wages of sin ultimately is death. That's you carry on walking this line. There is blackness and nothingness. You walk this way. There is, yes, admittedly, a time of some trial, but there is joy and eternal life and the everlasting arms. Head this way, my brothers. That's the way to live the Christian life. I'm, saying, I'm speaking, obviously, to people who know the law, the Torah, that the Torah only is, remains in control of you as long as you're alive. So it's actually... you. It's great. You've died to sin. We've died to sin. We've just established that you've actually not just died to sin. You've died to the Torah as well. (gasps) Shock horror amongst all my Jewish brothers who love the Torah. I love the Torah. Oh, believe me, I love the Torah. It's holy and righteous and good. But just think about marriage for a moment. Right? You're married to somebody, and then he dies. You are set free from that marriage. You married to some. You married to the Torah, and then you die to the Torah. You are free. You are liberated. You have died to the Torah through the body of Christ who has actually fulfilled it for you so that you might get married to another person so that you might bear fruit for God. While you're living in the flesh, we'll come back and talk about this more in a minute, and our, our sinful passions were worked up by the Torah to create an unrighteousness in it and produce death heading over there. But now we've been liberated from the Torah and that means that we now serve in a new way of the Spirit. And that law over there and righteousness over there and death over there and life over there and sin over there and again, righteousness over there. Flesh is on this side and spirit's on this side and you can't serve both. And I'm saying, that doesn't mean the Torah is sin. I just, for, imagine for a moment, I'm gonna be Adam and Israel for a moment, okay? Right? What, what I found was I was alive and I didn't, I didn't have the Torah, I didn't have any commandments, it was great. And then a, then a commandment came, happened to Adam, Happened to Israel, right? Golden calf, Garden of Eden, same thing happened, didn't it? They're happy, they're fine. We're free, this is great, relationship with God. Commandment comes, uh uh-oh, am I going to keep the commandment or not? And as a result, we said, we're not going to keep the commandment. I I didn't. And I said, stuff the commandment, I want to do my own thing, and I died. Oh, no. And that death came and spread to me. And that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with the commandment. What that means is that there's something very, very wrong with me which is that sin dwells within me and crouches like it crouched for Cain, thinking, I'm going to wait and wait and wait. I've got him. That's what it does. Same's true for for you. Same's true for sin working on you. So is it, maybe maybe it sounds like to modify that, maybe then something good produced death to me. Maybe the Torah, okay, wasn't evil, but the Torah nevertheless produced evil. Again, that's not the way it goes. Back to Adam and Israel again. Same thing, right? I'm walking, I live this kind of life in the, under the Torah and I find that every time a commandment comes whether I do it or not I kind of don't I don't want to do it right that's what happens I I, I live this way in the old life I live this way in the old covenant that every time a law comes I I find this struggle I know it's what God wants but it isn't what I want and I find this odd tension where I'm going oh do I do that oh no no okay and then oh I want to do it but I keep doing evil and oh uh," and I live this almost dilemma life where I'm continually bobbling around in this is as, as Adam and Israel of course you know what that's like because many of you have come out of that. That's the sort of life you lived. And so you were spending your whole time going, every time there's a good thing, I don't want to do it, oh no. And it was just this destructive whirlwind of down and down and down and down into more and more sort of sadness and grief and confusion and dilemma because I didn't want to do what God wanted me to do even though I knew I should. And I found myself saying, well, who's going to deliver me from this? This is just like an endless spiral. You know the answer, don't you? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus, who came to rescue us from it. Anyway, so in this world, I serve the law of sin, even though in my my spirit I should serve the law of righteousness. And that's why, if you are in Christ Jesus, God isn't angry with you anymore. There's no condemnation for anybody who is in Christ Jesus, because the, the law of the spirit of life, this way, has set you free from the law of sin and death this way because God has done what the Torah couldn't do because the Torah was weakened by the flesh and therefore it was bound to only work in a particular way to convict people of sin but by sending his son who looks just like you and me to come and walk through this entire journey yet without any of the conflict that Israel and Adam did and then find himself vindicated and righteous, God has fulfilled every single one of these righteous requirements of the law that are now given to us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Imagine for a moment the difference between flesh and spirit. Flesh being, imagine you're travelling across water. The spirit people, the Ruach people, the Numa people are putting their sails up and their entire life is about trying to get the wind in the sail and they are blown along. They have to do stuff, they have to work, they have to use their muscles, but they are waiting for the power that comes from somewhere else. And meanwhile, just down the road, oh, across the water, I should say, there's people who are rowing, straining by the flesh. It is the power of human flesh. And some of you guys have got the muscles you could probably imagine that you would be able to do that. But imagine the exhaustion and the stress and the strain. And meanwhile, there's guys over here just saying, oh, we don't, we don't sail according to the flesh. We don't travel across the water according to the flesh. We travel according to the, the Ruach. We're just blowing us along. That You cannot do both at once. You just can't. And actually... If you don't live by the Spirit, if you don't have yourself being propelled by the life of the Spirit, then you are not even in Christ. All people, every last one of us who is in Christ, I reassure you, brothers, if you are in Christ, you are led by the Spirit. You are sons and daughters of God. You are the person on whom God has put His Spirit into your soul that goes, that's my dad, that's my dad. And if you've had that experience, then you know that you are a spirit person and not a flesh person. And therefore you don't have any obligations to the guys who are sitting just across the lake going, (gasps) you don't have to do that anymore because you've got your sails up and He is your Father and He's propelling you to a future glory that just can't be compared with the kind of world you see around you at this moment. You become heirs of God of a future that is really at another level to anything you and I have ever seen. And it's that future that the whole of creation is desperately waiting for, thinking, when's it gonna come? When's it gonna come? When's it gonna come? I, I sometimes think of it this way. The prophets did, actually, didn't they? The prophets thought of it as a woman in labor. And I'm sorry to have to do this to you, but the woman in labor is lying on the ground... And she's straining and she is just in anguish because one day a new life is going to come out from within. And she's just desperately waiting for the day. But she can't, she's like, this is, oof, 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 oof. and of course, all around her, the doctors are saying and the husband is saying, keep going because the new life is coming. But she's like, I don't want to hear about it. I want to hear about it. I'm in anguish here. Go. Come on. Come on. Uh!" And she's grabbing hold of the husband. I can't believe you did this to me. And creation to some degree feels like that feeling. I am in this futility because of you. And I'm straining and desperate for the new life that comes. But the moment that it does and the new life comes out from within the old, all of that pain dissipates. And I look at this little child and I think, this is what I was doing it for. This hope has come. He's here. He's really here and all of creation is liberated from slavery at once and all the world says, you know what that was worth it that was worth it and it's high fives and hugs and messages to your parents yeah. and a celebration <laughs> everybody knows that the new world has come <laughs> and that's why we hope because we know that's where it's going like in the meantime there's a lot of hardship but the spirit the wind, the gift, the spirit of God, the breath of God has come to us to help us. I'm not pretending it's easy. It's not. I've just trying. It's like a woman straining in labour. That's what this life is like. Don't get used to the idea that this world should be free of suffering. This world is a place like a woman in labour, but the Spirit helps us and he stands with us and he cries out to God in ways that sometimes we've run out of words and he's still praying. He is interceding for us and even when we run out of things to say and we know that it actually because of that ending, we know that in every single thing that happens between now and then, ultimately God is working it for the good of the people who love him because we know that all of those whom God foreknew from before there was a world, he predestined that they would be like Jesus so that Jesus would have loads and loads of brothers and sisters and it would be wonderful. And all of those people then got justi- called and all of those people then got justified and all of those people then will be glorified. And if that's true in response to these things, what can we say except that, well, if God's on our side, then it doesn't matter who's against us because he has already vindicated us and he's already secured our ending. Who's gonna bring any charge or accusation? You did this. Do you know that? The other day you did that and that and that. I'm going to start listing them for you. Who's going to bring any charge? If you are elect of God, the law court trial has already taken place in your life and you have already been vindicated as innocent and righteous in front of him. And it doesn't matter who's accusing you because at the right hand of God, there is a man who has said, everything this person has done is covered. He has been raised and is at the right hand of God. And in, he's not only declaring you righteous, he is praying for you that the father would preserve you between now and that great day. So who's going to separate you from a love like that right you put anything the very worst things this world have to offer let's say danger okay that's not going to work nakedness now that's not going to work either tribulation distress persecution famine sword death can death separate me from the love of God? No. Well, what else is there? And the answer is nothing at all because actually we are going to face death all day long and be considered like ready to be slaughtered sheep. And even though that's true, we cannot be separated from the love of God whether it be height or death or the present or the past or angels or demons nothing, nothing, nothing anywhere in anything that has been or will be will ever be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Jesus our Lord. Now I'm... I'll be honest for a moment. This is this is where it gets more personal for me. I, all of these things I've declared, remain to be true of not enough of my Jewish brothers. In fact, an awful lot of them have turned their back on it and rejected it. And I, I, I'm not exaggerating when I say I'm just I. I wish I could be separated from Jesus myself, if it meant that they would find a way of being reconciled to God. I, I care that deeply right? There's all of this heritage I talked about. It's theirs by right. And some of them have rejected it. Many of them have. But even when they have, it's not because God's word has failed. It could sound like it was. It could sound like God made the promise to Abraham and then he broke it. But that's not what's happened. Not everybody descended from Israel is an Israelite. Not everybody who's a child of Abraham is really a child of Abraham. You go that right the way through, actually. Abraham has two boys. One of them is a child of promise. The other one isn't. Then, Jacob, then Isaac and Rebekah have two twin boys. And before they're even born, one of them's a child of promise and the other one isn't. And so if you're a Jew today and you're thinking, hey, this is unjust of God. I'm entitled to this election. God would say, no, you're not. Biological lineage has never been quite enough. Actually, that's not the only issue in town. In fact, some of you might say, well, this is unfair because God, with Jacob and Esau, God said, well, hang on, Esau's going to serve Jacob. And that was before Esau had done anything wrong. And it's true, but that's the way God's economy has always worked because what God has done is he said, I am going to use, choose you as a means of blessing them. And sometimes that means that these people who are going to one day be blessed are bound up in suffering and difficulty while God's purposes are being worked through the one who is elect in order to, for the means of saving all of them. And that's actually what happened. That happened with Pharaoh, right? In some ways, God said, I'm going to use Pharaoh as a means of bringing liberty to Israel. So this has always happened and you have benefited from it in the past and that's something that happens simply on the basis of the mercy of God you are no more entitled to be saved than Pharaoh was or Esau was or Jacob was Now, obviously that might then make it sound like God had decided simply to condemn you because he likes condemning people but that's not true at all and it might make you feel like oh well who this is so unfair because um God has made this decision about me and he's therefore unrighteous because I or my Jewish neighbor might not be a believer but actually that's not what happens when pots talk back to their potters is it you remember Jeremiah with the pot Jeremiah goes down to the potter's house and the pot is spoiled in his hand. And he thinks, okay, well, God is going to be able to make something different out of that. And then he's going to work on a new pot. So if Israel is saying, I'm going to spoil myself in the hands of the potter, God is not going to say, well, I'm therefore on a bound to make sure that every single one of you and work around and become something else. That's not the way it is at all. God says, okay, I'll put that to one side. I will bring the purposes of God about in another way. I will bring the purpose. That's exactly what Jeremiah applies, of course, in the rest of that chapter, isn't it? He says, if any nation which I have chosen for good rebels against me, they end up, I will, I will reconsider the good. But if any nation who I had said I was gonna judge repents as Jonah found out, I then bless them. That's what's happening right now in our generation. Jews are doing that. Jews are turning their back on their promises and God's saying, okay, But God is then bringing about that rescue to the Gentiles as well as the Jews as in fact the prophet Hosea always said it's the people who aren't my people who are going to be called my people. The people who aren't loved who are going to be called loved and children of the living God. And Isaiah said it and so we see it all the way through and the Gentiles at this moment in our day the Gentiles have not been particularly looking for God and they found him. And the Jews who've been trying to find it the wrong way have not found him because they've trusted too much in their own righteousness and they've tripped over the stone that we all know what it's like to have in our shoe that's what they had they found it with the messiah they stumbled and they didn't realize that the way the righteousness of god was always going to work again if we trace this story back was that the destination of the torah was going to be christ so that there might be righteousness this side of christ for everybody who believed whatever nation they came from but the jews didn't realize that and as a result they've got themselves caught in a bit of a bind expecting an entitlement many of my brothers are that God will somehow save them simply because of their ethnicity and that is not true. Moses said that kind of thing. Moses said it in Deuteronomy 30 as he's finishing the Torah. It's coming to its end, its climax and he says, do you know this word that I'm giving you today to keep the Torah not far away You don't have to try and reach for the sky or go down to the depths of the earth. Actually, you'll find it's near you that God's spirit is going to come in you and the word of God is going to be right there and you're going to be able to do what the law requires. Moses was talking about the day when Christ had fulfilled the law and the spirit was given to all people so that we might be able to trust him whatever nation we came from. The same God is the God of everyone. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. He's the one Lord. And so we're all able to worship and save him together and everyone, whether the Jewish or Gentile, who calls on the name of the Lord is going to get rescued. Of course... Again, brackets, they can't, remember now, I didn't shut the previous brackets, did I? Let's assume that it's finished, but brackets. We are in a position now where the Gentiles all need to hear the word as well. And of course, they can't hear the word unless we preach and that can't happen unless somebody's sent and so on. You know, the Isaiah promise, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So we've got to make sure we keep doing that. But actually we find Israel as well are the problem because they're not believing the word and they have heard it because they've read it in the Psalms. You remember, their voice has gone out to all the earth, the words to the end of the world. Is it that Israel didn't understand? No, Isaiah tells us that. Isaiah actually says, I've been found by the people who weren't looking and I've all day long I've held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So if something of what I've said in the last 10 minutes makes you think that I have arbitrarily condemned Israel, that you have just haven't read the prophets and you haven't been listening to me. The reality is that Israel has turned their back on me and I... There is a on God, and there is a grievance in God, and yet, nevertheless, God's promises are certain to be accomplished in and through Christ, even if many Jews reject it. So God hasn't rejected them finally, but He has. For now, they are in trouble. But what I am looking to is the day when that rejection is te- is suspended, and God gathers in a large number of people, and I'm a down payment of that because, of course, I'm a Jew, as you all know, and I feel sometimes like a bit like Elijah, going, "Wow, look at all these Jews around here! They've all all renounced faith. I'm the only one left." And God said to me, what he says to Elijah is, no, 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 there's thousands, of them. there's thousands of them coming to faith. Actually, Israel didn't get what they wanted. The elect among Israel did, but a lot of the nation didn't and God in the end has hardened them, but he didn't harden them so that they might stumble irrevocably to never come back. He actually hardened them so that there was this sort of partial hardening, which means that one day the Gentiles, when the fullness of Gentiles will come in, the hardening will be lifted and Israel and the Gentiles will come together in one huge family and worship the same God. It's like, um, you've seen olive trees, you have the olive tree which has natural branches, but you know, you can graft in another branch and it will become part of the tree and take on its identity and its sap. And that's what God's done with the people of God. So you have a Jewish tree. And each branch is broken off through unbelief. That's their problem, not God's in a way. But God has then said, well, I'm going to build this olive tree into something far bigger and more beautiful. I'm going to graft in Gentile after Gentile after Gentile until there is one tree that is full of the same identity, even though some of them have been there all along and a great many of them are new to the party, as many, of course, in the church in Rome. I don't want you to be unaware of the mystery. A partial partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And that's how all Israel are gonna be saved together, as the prophets indeed have said. So you might now think, these guys are my enemies because they're persecuting me in the gospel. But actually, on the basis of election, the Jews with you receive those promises and there is a destiny that one day, even as God has shown like judgment on all who are disobedient. One day he's going to have mercy on all of them and we're all going to join in one family, one flock, one shepherd. Guys, the depth of the riches and the wisdom, the knowledge of God, which is just beyond searching out, isn't it? That God would think this way and act this way. and We can't argue with him, but sometimes I find myself being in awe of it for from him and through him and to him are all things. Amen. So, The way you live is simply say, well, I'm going to give my body as an act of worship in response to God. And that's going to mean a whole host of things which we'll deal with reasonably quickly. Um, You mustn't think too highly of yourself, but think of yourself as being part of a body where everyone has different functions and everyone has different gifts. And make sure that you offer yourself and the things that God's given you, it might be prophecy or leadership or mercy or chat, whatever it might be. Make sure that you give those things for the good of the whole body and they'll serve you and you'll serve them. And that love be genuine, make sure that you hate evil and embrace everything that's good, that you love each other. It's not that Christianity, I've said a lot about the Torah, it's not that Christianity doesn't have rules. It kind of does have rules. They're just different rules that you can keep because the Holy Spirit's within you. And that means making sure you love one another and making sure you pursue peace with one another and you stand up under tribulation. You keep praying, you look after the saints, you care for the poor. You don't When people persecute you, you don't persecute them back, you bless them. It's basically, you've read all of this from the Messiah. You know what he taught us. Well, I'm just saying we need to live like that, whether you're in Rome or in Galilee, that's what we do. You don't get proud. You're not wise in your own sight. You never pay evil back when people do evil to you, which I know they do. You actually, ultimately, you leave room for God to bring the judgment. The basis for you not avenging is not that God won't avenge, it's that he will. And in the meantime, you just wait and say, okay, well, I'm just going to keep praying for them and I'm going to feed my enemy. I'm going to give him a drink if need be. You don't overcome evil with evil. You overcome evil with good. And obviously, the classic example, in some ways, is the way that you're to respond to the empire who are trying to wipe you out some of the time. You've got Nero. I'm not even sure where this is going. I know it's a tough time for you to live under that man. But there is ultimately, you've got to remember that even Nero is not outside of the sovereignty of God. And therefore, the way you respond to him is a test in some ways of our Christian fidelity. And you mustn't make sure you, you don't don't thumb your nose to him and think, oh, I've got Jesus. I don't need to care about Nero. See, actually, Nero's the guy with the sword. And so is the rest of the empire. And if you find that you are disobeying the empire, you may well find that they come in and chop your head off or they throw you in jail. And actually, you've got to be mindful of that. And that's the reason why you submit. And you submit. It's also why you pay taxes, for goodness sake. Some of us, we hate it. Jewish guys especially, we just hate the idea of paying taxes to him. And, yet, and so well, we are taxpayers because we know, actually, our, it's important to keep our conscience clear on this one, knowing that the empire is a servant of God. And so we pay everybody what they deserve. And we don't owe anybody anything except, of course, the love command, which is that you love your neighbour as yourself. That's, the, that's the, the fullest statement of the Christian ethic. And you know that we've got to be the people who wake up. right? The rest of the world's asleep. Just... So they don't realise when the empire does this or when God says that or when this little thing kicks off in a nearby city, they don't know what's going on. They're fast asleep. They're in a daydream. You are awake. You should know the time. Wake up. Come on, smell the coffee. Get on with it and make sure that you behave rightly and that you don't end up living in such a way that serves the evil, but you live in a way that serves good, not orgies and drunkenness and the things the Romans do. You put on the Lord Jesus Christ and don't make any provision for the flesh or gratify any of its desires. Probably a good test case for you as a church, of course, is the way that the Jews and Gentiles among you respond to one another over issues like food and over holy days. Right? Some of you consider some days are more sacred than others. Some of you don't. Some of you consider some festivals sacred. Some of you don't. Some of you consider some foods are beyond eating. Some of you don't the key is not actually whether you eat something or whether you don't or drink something or whether you don't or observe a day or whether you don't the key is that the motive underlying what you do is love for your brother in order that all of you together will reach the judgement seat of Christ and face vindication at the same time to the glory of God rather than that some of you do things that because you want to preserve your liberty you end up putting things in front of people that stop them from getting there you mustn't do that you really mustn't because you could put stumbling stones in their shoe and they could get knocked off course just like any of the other people would we've been talking about from my nation and that's very important that you don't think that way because we're all going to reach the judgment seat of Christ and he's the master so if somebody one of your brothers is eating something that you wouldn't eat leave him to it you just make sure, oh, I've got my master, he's got his. That's up. It's not an issue of sin, you see. It's not a right-wrong issue, like many of the things we've discussed. This is something where, ultimately, people can, in good conscience, arrive at different convictions. And I have. Like, I think nothing's unclean. I'm persuaded of that. I think it goes right back. I won't go back to Acts 10, but you know what it says, right? I, so I'm convinced nothing's unclean. Yeah. But if I'm sitting next to a guy who thinks, this pig's, this swine's flesh is disgusting and it's an abomination, I'm not going to eat swine flesh in front of him. Why would I? Because it's not a loving thing to do to him. And the same could be true of drinking. And the same true of. it's true of everything the kingdom of God is not about eating or drinking it's about love and peace and joy in the spirit and if you can't see that then you're going to end up harming your brothers and I would really ask that you don't do that and in doing so destroy the work of God if you've got faith that something's okay keep it to yourself and God if a brother nearby doesn't think the same way as you just welcome each other Right? God in Christ has welcomed you and you had a lot of foibles and hang ups when he did so you should be welcoming your brothers and your sisters who have foibles and hang-ups when they come to Christ and some of them will keep those foibles for a long time. Deal with it. Love them. Don't press your liberty to the destruction of another person. Welcome each other as God in Christ welcomed you. Because I'm saying that God became a servant, a Christ, sorry, Christ became a servant to the circumcised to demonstrate that God was true That actually, he wanted Jews and Gentiles together to come into one family. So, issues like food and drink and all of those others, they were always going to be an issue when these promises finally came about. You're living in the hotspot of that problem. But that's because the place, the privilege you have and I have in salvation history is of seeing this covenant come to a climax and seeing all nations gathered together like this. So, we are dealing with these problems. And to be honest, our brothers and sisters, in centuries to come, we'll be living in the heritage of the decisions we've made today. And the reason is because God always wanted Jew and Gentile to come. You just go through the Psalms, rejoice all your nations, all your nations, lift your hands, all your nations this, all your nations that, all your nations blah, blah, blah. God has always wanted that to happen. And in fact, when Christ died, he had that vision in his mind. That's why he did it. Do you look at a, the Good Friday, you've got the thought bubbles and one of the thieves going, oh, I don't really like this guy. And the other one's going, oh, I wonder if he'll let me into paradise. And Jesus is going, I want to show that God keeps his promises. That's why I'm here You think, wow, well, that promise to integrate Jew and Gentile together was always going to be coming. And you knew I was going to get there in the end, but this is why I've written the letter. This is why I've written the letter, because I want you to realise that written into the fabric of the promises of God is the idea that those who have the message are not the end of the story, but that beyond us, there are whole nations and generations beyond us who need to hear it as well and therefore I've written pretty robustly I think at times. I've, I've, I hope I haven't lost my temper but I've been fairly leery at times because I wanted you to see the significance of what's at stake and I have lived my life like this and I've now done what God initially called me to do. Jerusalem up to Dalmatia in Croatia. I've done it all. Everywhere I go there doesn't seem to be anything left. Every town I go to somebody there is going oh I'm a believer and we're trying to start something in our home and we've begun preaching in the marketplace. I'm thinking how on earth does this happen? God has just through me signs and wonders and the word. He has brought about massive transformation across that area and there are churches everywhere so I've got nothing left to do loads of unbelievers left but there are churches so now I want to go to Spain way off over here which I know you guys think is a little bit the rump end of the empire but there are people there whom God wants to have hear the message and I want to get there so I'm hoping that when I come to you I can pre- at the moment I'm taking an offering to the church in Jerusalem which I trust you all know about and thank you for your help and partnership in that but really the reason I need you is because I I mean, I don't speak Spanish. I don't have the resources. I don't have a boat. I wanna come and join with you and have you send me on my way so that I reach the ends of the earth so that all nations might come and worship the same Saviour so that people who've never heard of him come to faith. That's what's motivated me to write this letter. And that's why it's taken me so long to get to you. And I'm trusting that you are gonna strive together with me in prayer for God that I might be delivered when I go down to Judea and that I might not run into hot water when I turn up in there. And obviously there's people there who don't particularly like me. And there's been a lot of... You know the history, Um, but I trust that I'll be liberated from that and then we'll be able to come with you, find joy in your company and you send me on my way in mission with some of the brothers. As I bring in this letter is obviously Phoebe and I think she's marvellous. She's one of the deacons at the Kentria Church and she's just been fantastic. She's supported me financially. She's a wonderful woman of God. I trust that you're going to make her feel at home and look after her and i please the first people to greet there. Prissa and Aquila, these guys, they, gave, they, they risked their lives for me. Like, please give them the biggest hug you possibly can. I love those guys so much. And I uh, give thanks... And it's not just me that thanks God for them, actually, the whole, all of the Gentile churches do. They are an amazing example of how to be a couple together on mission. Please greet the whole church in the house. Epinesis, he's the first person I saw saved in Turkey. Greet Mary, she's worked really hard. Andronicus and junior outstanding among the apostles. And they were in Christ before I was. And please thank God for them. Greet Ampliatus, who I love in God. Urbanus and Stachus and Apelles and the whole household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, he's one of my cousins. Greet those in the Lord who belong to Narcissus and the people of Trifena and Tryphos, these women unstoppable but thank you for them please pass on the greeting to them greet Persis she's worked incredibly hard greet Rufus and his mum she's been a mother to me and I've needed her she was there when I needed her Asyncretus Phlegon Hermas Patrobus Hermas and the brothers all are with them Philologus Julian Nereus and his sister Olympus all the saints greet all of them and actually anyone else I've missed with a holy kiss and all the churches of Christ greet you final words guys please please watch out for anybody who would divide you Right? There is so much risk of that with all the complexities we've explored in this letter. Don't let anybody sneak in with a different doctrine. Avoid them. They don't serve Christ if they do. They serve their own appetites and they flatter people and they take people away if they're naive. But your obedience, I know, is known to everybody and I rejoice over you. So I want you to have wisdom about the innocent. I want you to just avoid and shun everything that's evil. And the God of peace one day is gonna come and he's gonna crush that snake under your feet and you will never have to worry about that threat ever again. May the grace of God be with you. Timothy says hi. Lucius, Jason, Sosipater, I'm just going. Tertius wants to sign his name as well. I, I wrote my wrote this letter. I greet you in the Lord. Gaius is host to me. Erastus, he's the treasurer of the city now. Would you believe he says hi? Cortus greets you now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. According to this mystery which was hidden as we saw, kept secret for all of these long ages, but now has been made known through the prophetic writings to every nation on earth according to the command of the eternal God which I started with to bring about the obedience of faith from all nations to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, amen.